I V M. When we talk about feeding 10 billion, we mean that everybody has a stake in the future of food. Vulnerable populations in places like sub-Saharan Africa and South and Southeast Asia are often left out of the conversation when it comes to the game-changing innovations of the future. Because we often assume that technology advancement can only come from the traditional hubs of technology in the global north. But that isn't necessarily true. As we've discussed previously on previous seasons of Feeding 10 Billion, technologies like the M-Pesa money transfer protocol in Africa are both fit for purpose in the developing world and absolutely ingenious on a global scale. Sometimes when you bring brilliant minds together with new constraints and environments, magic happens. That's what we're hoping to catalyze with the XPRIZE Feed the Next Billion competition, replicating chicken breast and fish fillet with plants, cells, or microorganisms, not just in terms of taste and price, which are of course hugely important, but also in terms of the ability to produce these foods in the most resource-scarce environments around the world. This episode's guest and his team have proven a model to generate this kind of innovation over and over, with fantastic results for the most vulnerable among us. Bernhard Kowatch is the head of the Innovation Accelerator at the United Nations World Food Programme. The World Food Programme, by the way, is the 2020 Nobel Peace Prize laureate for their excellent work. The Innovation Accelerator was named by Fast Company as Best Workplace for Innovators and Innovative Team of the Year 2020 for its work in identifying, nurturing, and scaling disruptive startups and innovations to end global hunger. It's richly deserved recognition for truly pioneering work. In 2019, innovation supported by the Accelerator positively impacted the lives of 1.4 million people directly and many more indirectly across the globe. Most recently, the Accelerator also runs programs for external partners such as the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation in primary healthcare, humanitarian grand challenges, and others. We're delighted to have Bernhard on this episode of Feeding 10 Billion. I'm Varun Deshpande, Managing Director at the Good Food Institute India. Bernard, thank you so much for being with us on Feeding 10 Billion. It's a pleasure to have you. My first question for you is a bit of a classic of modern agriculture and food. It's about global hunger. We've heard a lot over the last decades, Bernard, about how the world is now producing record levels of food. Uh, initiatives such as the Green Revolution over the last decades were aimed at solving the problem of resources and of yield of a lot of crops, basically solving calorie food insecurity and focusing on creating self-reliance. But why do we keep hearing issues of food insecurity all over the world? I think you're probably best placed out of the World Food Program to answer this question. Could you give us a, a global perspective on some of this? Absolutely. And thank you so much, Varun, for having me on this interview today. Globally, it's still 690 million people suffering from hunger. So this is one in 11 people globally that doesn't have enough calories on a daily basis to live a healthy life. Now, if you think about this, this sounds like a big problem, and it is. However, looking at the long-term trend over the last 30 years, we actually have improved a fair bit. So from over 1 billion people considered hungry to now 690 million people who are hungry. 
The issue, though, is that in the last five years, the trend has been in the wrong direction. So like we actually have increased the number of hungry people again, adding another 50 million people. And the reason for that, like the drivers of increases is wars and conflicts. It's about climate change. And most recently, unfortunately, again, COVID-19 that hits the most vulnerable people. So if you're poor, if you're hungry, you're a lot more affected by COVID-19. And the underlying root causes of hunger are manifold and different from country to country, from region to region. A lot of this has to do with could be just production of food, could be how it's being used, like food waste. But then it also has to do with just, you know, chronic hunger a lot of times has to do with poverty. So people just don't have enough income, which leads to children not having enough to eat and then leading to them being stunted and therefore they have worse health outcomes. So it's really one of those issues. Hunger is is solvable problem and there is ways how we can tackle it. And I'm really hopeful that, you know, innovation, technology, bright new ideas will help us to reach the goal of zero hunger globally. Yeah, thank you so much for that. And of course, zero hunger is one of the, the primary sustainable development goals that pretty much all countries around the world have subscribed to and taken vocal leadership in, particularly India. I want to zoom in, Bernard, to several of the points that you made there actually in that excellent answer. Climate change in particular, but then also innovation and its role in addressing some of these things. So, the food system globally, as you say, it is still vulnerable, right? We are still in the situation where in a given period, we could slide backwards as we're observing from the last five years, and especially due to COVID-19. As we move forward over the next decades, therefore, it's really important for us to create food systems, food production systems that are more and more sustainable and more and more efficient, right? Because we're going to have to prepare for a world where climate change is more and more common. Climate stresses, as you point out, are very, very common. And then also try and slow down those climate stresses at the same time. That's where we kind of come in with what we're talking about today on Feeding 10 Billion uh, is the use of innovation to provide products that are much more efficient than certain protein production platforms. So could you talk a little bit about some of these issues related to climate and how technology is being deployed uh, to produce food much more sustainably and efficiently today? Totally. It's one of those things where climate change, unfortunately, sometimes creates visible changes, like when we talk about climate shock. So these are extreme events like floods, storms, typhoons, hurricanes. But then there's also climate stresses. So this is like the rising salinity of soils. These type of stresses are not as visible and they happen over time. This is where we have to think a lot more carefully about like how are we ensuring that for the future is both like the food production, the food systems overall intact, but then leaving no one behind on alongside. Because this is one of the challenges, at least from our work that we're doing as World Food Program, program. There are, you know, a couple of activities that we would typically do in any of the countries where we operate, where, for instance, we're working on food assistance for assets, where it's about how do we actually help people build, for instance, infrastructure, dams, canals, other things that can help us restore the environment so that, you know, next time there's a flood, it's not as drastic of an effect. There's other aspects about 
for instance, how can we protect against climate? So this is all about like micro insurance and not as much technology as it could be technology enabled, but it's business model where we know, for instance, if you think about weather related insurance or insurances against irregular rainfall, these type of things can help us balance out localized effects of some of these changes. And then the last part is about how can we anticipate and then react quicker, which is all about, for instance, government safety net programs or systems and tools that can help, for instance, react and prepare earlier. You see this a lot already, for instance, like with typhoons, hurricanes, like these types of weather-related events. But then it's also about like how quick are you in preparing and making sure that people are not suffering from the adverse effects of these events. Yeah, thank you. Exactly right. And it's not, I mean, it's not just climate stresses, right? We're also seeing, of course, with a zoonotic disease, how we can have huge, huge impacts on the world. I mean, Lawrence Haddad of, of Gain called this a, a crisis that is basically biblical on steroids and will cut across generations in terms of its shocks on public health systems and on the food supply in terms of delivering micronutrients to people. So we might backslide in a big way when it comes to debilitating conditions like iron deficiency, anemia, neural tube defects, etc. And of course, the World Food Program is at the forefront of tackling these issues. We also know that um, low and middle-income countries where you do excellent work, we have about 40% of the world's population, but we have over 60%, well over 60% of the world's foodborne illness-related deaths, right? So all of these issues are, when we say that the food system is balanced on a knife edge, it's especially true in the developing world. So I want to zoom in perhaps on the issue of prevention that you mentioned just now. The proposition that I'll place before you is basically why the Good Food Institute was founded, and especially the Good Food Institute India. We're seeing huge and rising demand for animal-sourced foods across the developing world. So meat, eggs, and dairy, are um, they're delicious. They are also aspirational foods, right? So if we go to an urban slum in Mumbai and talk to people, they'll tell you that you know they might be spending a certain amount of money, 460 rupees or about $6 on one mutton meal per week. And if they could, they would spend 920 rupees on two mutton meals per week because it brings people together, it's tasty, and it's an aspirational food. And of course, you know, it contains protein and, and protein has a bit of a health halo these days as well. So as this continues to rise over the next decade, we might see climate change accelerate, we might see public health issues accelerate. And what we're seeing is that innovation and technology is a major way to address this problem. You and I are on this um, advisory board for the X Prize together, talking about creating a global future positive movement of one million people catalyzing innovation, accelerating a more hopeful future, incentivizing radical breakthroughs for the benefit of humanity. So the XPRIZE Feed the Next Billion prize of $15 million. We're going to try and seek to meet the growing demand for these protein products through the development of alternatives to chicken and fish products. Could you talk a little bit about how you came to be on the advisory board from your vantage point? at World Food Program and why you see this as a promising area? I know that was a very long question, but thanks for bearing <laughs> with me. Yes, absolutely. And it's, it's one of those areas where in my role in the World Food Program as head of Innovation Accelerator, we work with startups and innovation teams globally that help us disrupt hunger. So like our viewpoint is really that we need to find the best and brightest ideas that can help us 
end hunger and make also our emergency assistance more effective. And like that lens is really based on the view of if we're serious about ending hunger, we need the best, the best and brightest minds on the world actually putting their thoughts into this, their energy, their passion, and also entrepreneurs putting in their capital. Now, as World Food Program, we actually have uh, been partnering with the X Prize before. So, for instance, like for the Global Learning X Prize, our Tanzania country office has been doing the field testing for the Global Learning X Prize, which is about the ability for children to self-learn basic reading and writing and math skills. And so for the last couple of years as Innovation Accelerator, we've actually been explored together with the XPRIZE. What if we could create a food XPRIZE that also makes sure that the hungry people globally have a better future? And this is where the vision of Feed the Next Billion is a bold one, but it's also something that I'm really excited about where what if we can find new solutions, inventive new ideas of the brightest minds out there, and it can be for profit that will create a more inclusive food system where more people will have the ability to eat healthy, nutritious food that tastes well and that's affordable for them, and where it just it's more equalitarian for them. And I think our perspective on this is. We want to make sure there is nobody left behind in this journey. I think it's fine that if you have a very developed product that costs a lot of money and that's hip for people to use. For our purposes, I think I'm really looking forward also to these creative ideas that are maybe lower cost, culturally appropriate, things that will just be a game changer in how we can provide also for people in like more vulnerable in poorer settings and enable them to have a better future. Yeah, that's perfect. That hits the nail on the head for me. And I think, you know, as far as GFI India is concerned specifically, we're very much focused on seeing how we can fit this alternative protein sector into the context of the developing world, which basically means the next billion, right? We're talking about regions like South Asia, broader Asia, sub-Saharan Africa, Latin America, places where, as I say, a significant portion of the demand for meat, eggs, and dairy is going to come from these regions over the next decade. But I have a question for you, Bernard. What do people want to eat? Because I know that's a very complex question. What we've seen in the past is that oftentimes when you talk about providing food for the world's population, oftentimes you land up with solutions that are packed with micronutrients, uh, maybe with macronutrients, but they aren't necessarily in the formats or culturally relevant ways that people actually want to consume. So I gave the example of, you know, people in an urban slum in Mumbai wanting to eat a mutton curry because it's an aspirational food and it brings people together. Could you talk a little bit further about the knowledge that the World Food Program has about how people actually eat in their daily lives and how to make products that they actually want to eat so that they can compete in the marketplace? I think it's a very uh, challenging question. It's something that's really, really on top of people's minds also where I think sometimes there's a misconception of like, well, there's this new superfood or there's this new cheap source of calories, proteins, micronutrients, and therefore people will jump on it. And it's just something that I think we need to look at, at vulnerable and poor and hungry populations as the people that we serve rather than, for instance, like calling them other names or giving them a specific title. We are serving those people and we need to look at them as they have needs, they have their desires. And this is just something that people have to be aware. There's a very basic concept. And for me personally, I would say, yes, people eat so you have calorie intake. 
But eating food is also something that has, you know, there's that's tradition that has something to do with like daily behavior. Maybe it's social. There's actually something that's a lot more complex than just, you know, calorie intake. Like there have been a couple of startups that are looking into, well, we just provide a blended mix of nutrients that's perfect for you. So it takes away the choice of food for you. But I am personally not very convinced that this is going to be the successful uh, way to go. Um, now, what we have seen, and like there's a couple of innovations that we've supported as Innovation Accelerator, also in particular, where it's about nutrition, where it's about food fortification, it's always challenging when you're assuming that you need to change somebody's behavior. It's a lot better when you're trying to find something that's you know, already culturally accepted, something that people want to eat and then they enjoy to eat. And I'll give you one specific example. So we've been working on an innovation that's called H2Grow, which is a hydroponics growing toolkit, so growing plants without soil. And it actually was submitted to us initially from a Saravi refugee from Southwest Algeria, where he said, like, can we grow animal fodder so we can feed our goats in particular with fresh fodder rather than them eating like just the garbage that's lying around? And like the specific, now what has happened there is in that specific case, there's over 26,000 people globally in nine countries already that do that, both now animal fodder and also growing vegetables, where they can either augment their own nutrition intake or provide for themselves. So like people who have been dependent on food assistance, all of a sudden can provide for themselves and they still eat the food that they like and that that's culturally appropriate for them. And I think this is the type of direction that we need to look for, like, culturally accepted solutions, things that people want to eat. And there might be ways of introducing new, interesting ways of doing things, but we also just can benefit from, you know, the industry and the private sector. So it's not only about like telling people what not to eat, but why not making it appealing and exciting to for people to also eat? Yeah, this is really, really interesting and fascinating because I think the Bernard, I think the principles of innovation that you're outlining here, um, even though we do quite different things and, and you look across a broader swath of innovations and we focus, we are laser focused on alternative proteins, this particular principle of make something people want or which is culturally entrenched, which fulfills a need that already exists for people is such a universal innovation principle. It's never innovation for the sake of innovation. It's um, innovation to serve people, like you said. So within our space, we kind of love to say, and we've seen the, the proof of this, that eat chickpeas, not chicken, or eat broccoli, not beef, uh, doesn't seem to have worked over the decades, over the world. And that's kind of where we've reached right now in terms of huge and rising uh, meat consumption all over the world, which is what the Feed the Next Billion X Prize is a response to. That's why they've chosen a chicken breast and a fish fillet as kind of a holy grail product that people already really want to eat, but which we're looking to make in very different ways from, from plant-based proteins or from fermentation-derived microorganisms or from animal cells directly. And I think this innovation principle of make something people want is a really, really important one here. So I wanted to ask you, what's made you excited about this particular industry and how can it actually fit into the poorest places in the world? Because those are the questions that we think about at GFI India specifically, is how do we fit this into the context of the developing world? And oftentimes that's going to take a very long time in terms of driving down the cost of all of this. So I think part of the 
excitement about like solving big problems is the impact that you can make. And specifically, as you're saying, like the, it is a big challenge and we shouldn't forget about the hunger in areas like Yemen, South Sudan, Congo, where there's millions of people who are suffering from hunger right now and we should not forget them. And if there is technology solutions, there's new business models, there's these bright new ideas. And, you know, instead of using that energy and that brain space to create, let's say, a new dating app, you're creating something that's really meaningful and is able to change people's lives, some people's lives who are... Otherwise, maybe not the priority of some other innovations and products that are being seen there. But if you think about the potential, it's not just about just charity or just donating money, but you can create a movement, you can create something that has wide-ranging impact for people and like ideally not just 10,000 people, 100,000 people, maybe a million, 10 million, 100 million people. And if we believe in this vision of zero hunger and the 690 million hungry people, it's like we do need those solutions that can impact, you know, 100 million people and help them lift them out of hunger. And this is really where it also doesn't have to be just super low tech. It can be high tech. Also, we've been working with startups, for instance, that use artificial intelligence for flood forecasting, which is called cloud to street. And it's something that now governments and also with what Food Probe use to help us in our response. Or we're using blockchain technology for cash transfers, which helps us be better in our service and more responsive and better in collaborating with other international players. So that these are these types of things that are, you know, you wouldn't have thought this is even possible years ago, but because the way technology costs have gone down, the way technology has evolved artificial intelligence, blockchain, new business model, how these type of things are enabling a new wave of startups and innovations that also democratizes the access to these types of solutions. So we see a lot of startups that are also coming from developing countries. It's not all coming from developed countries. Oh my gosh, Bernard, there's so many threads of everything that you say that I could pull on and we could talk for hours. For now, I'm just going to say uh, we have to take a quick break on feeding 10 billion and we'll be right back with Mr. Bernard Kovac. All right, welcome back to this very exciting episode of Feeding 10 Billion. Uh, I'm talking to Bernard, who leads the Innovation Accelerator at the World Food Program. Bernard, you before the break, you talked about a couple of things that I really want to pull on for a second here. You talked about business models that are fit for purpose in the developing world. And then you talked about really high tech and how it can be applied in those situations as well. I'll just take the latter of those first. And I have a counterpoint to that, actually. Everything we're talking about, Bernard, whether it's plant-based meat substitutes, let's say for the X prize, feed the next billion prize, let's say a plant-based chicken breast, the most common technology that's currently used to prepare really good next generation meat analogs is called high moisture extrusion. And as managing director of the Good Food Institute India, I can tell you that we don't have this infrastructure in places like India, sub-Saharan Africa, etc. I've been having the conversation about where is the extruder for companies to use for the last three and a half years. So, you know, a lot of the technologies that we mentioned, artificial intelligence, the blockchain, et cetera, they sit on multiple decades of fundamental infrastructure installation and talent pool creation and all of those things before they could really move into the next phase and become accessible to markets like the ones in which you operate and I operate. So 
in terms of accelerating that timeline and thinking through how we can apply technology in food and biotech really quickly, uh, do you have any thoughts on how we can shortcut that process without waiting for trillions of dollars of infrastructure investment? So I think there is areas of innovation or industries where you might be able to leapfrog certain steps of development in developing countries in particular. And you've seen this with mobile banking, for instance, like with M-Pesa in Kenya, where people who have not have had access to bank accounts and maybe have never set a foot into a physical bank now are included in the financial system through mobile phones. Similarly, so there's there's solutions. And I think these examples of like blockchain and artificial intelligence, where you can use those examples and like include people, let's say, for instance, like mobile first in those solutions, or it's a job for a young entrepreneurial person who is then an entrepreneur with a smartphone who provides services to a community of people. So I do think there is this, it's possible to, in certain areas to do that. Now, I think you're right in terms of specifically food systems or how food production is happening or where value-added steps are happening, it is a lot more challenging and you need to be more creative. So I don't necessarily think in that particular case, we should always aim for the highest tech solution. Now, the example that I spoke about earlier, h to grow the hydroponics growing kit. So what we're seeing in a lot of developed countries is like these high-end vertical farming installations that are in urban areas. What we have adopted for in what's currently scaling is a very low-tech version of this, which with minimal costs to set up and minimum technology. However, we use a smartphone application to uh, train the people so that to actually share the knowledge so that they are able to actually replicate the training and actually participate in some of it. So I agree with what you're saying. Like I do think some of these aspects Maybe we need to shift the thinking of the traditional also, you know, venture capital or innovation market. Not everything has to be the super high tech version, but then, you know, you could use some other technology like smartphone apps or other things to enable the growth or the growth path for these low cost or lower technology items. Yeah, that's a fascinating point. I think it also, that brings in very nicely the first thing I was talking about earlier, which is the business models question, right? A lot of the innovation that's taken place internationally that has emanated from places like the US and Europe and places like Singapore, which are taking a leading role in this alternative protein transition, has been governed by the resources that are available. And most most importantly, I think, the constraints that are placed upon entrepreneurs in those markets. Whereas the constraints that are placed upon entrepreneurs in places like India and sub-Saharan Africa are very different and therefore kind of bottom-up innovation from the ground up will be ingenious in its own way to respond to those constraints. I also think there's an important point here that you made that, that, that is kind of building off what you made. The, the infrastructure that I described earlier need not always be hard assets in the ground like manufacturing infrastructure, but sometimes there is what I would describe maybe as social infrastructure that already is being built or already exists. So you just mentioned mobile phone apps to train farmers. There are excellent organizations all over, including you know organizations that you work with, the World Food Program itself, but then also nonprofits like Digital Green, which operate in India and Africa, private companies like Dehat, a lot of really interesting efforts to basically formalize the farmer-producer organization model in places like India, educate farmers on productivity, access to markets, use of technology, etc. And I think leveraging that as both 
social infrastructure as well as any other manufacturing and other infrastructure that gets set up in the ground is, I think, the way forward for people in these markets. One particular idea that I think is something that came up from what you said is the idea of, I think, decentralization. So in order to reach places that are lower resourced or less connected, we'll have to take a lens here, you know, talking about the constraints theme that I brought up earlier, we'll have to take a lens here of making things smaller and decentralized instead of a really large facility that produces meat from cells or meat from microbes. Can we create miniature versions that are shipped to people across the length and breadth of a place like India and then, you know, have them access training materials for how to produce and process and consume and then also sell some of what they produce into markets in ways that actually appeal to them and in ways that are accessible from a price standpoint. You mentioned H2Grow might be an example of something like this, but have you seen any other technologies that take this model of decentralization and fitting into the, the context of lower resourced environments? It's a very interesting question. I mean, like there's a couple of business models that when you see them adapted, it's actually really something that can, you know, democratize or decentralize and like actually have a lot more impact. Like it's actually a recent example from our scaling program. So our innovation accelerator. So people can actually also apply to our program globally. Like it's publicly accessible. We do get a lot of applications from developing countries in particular. So like we always encourage the brightest and smartest ideas and the entrepreneurs to come forward and apply. Now, the two re most recent additions in our scaling program, and that's we are lucky to have the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation as a partner uh, enabling us in, in funding the scaling of those two startups. It's like one of them is called um, BioAnalyte. And what they're doing is essentially an IoT device for uh, measuring the vitamin content, for instance, in vegetable oil. And the basic idea here is it's an IoT device. So you decentralize the a central lab infrastructure so we can measure the fortification success of micronutrient contents of products and thereby ensuring that, you know, the, it's not only about calories, but it's also about the nutrients that people are consuming. And the second example is actually called Sanko. It's this a Tanzanian startup. Sanko is producing a microdosifier for fortifying flour. It's a microdosifier for small mills. So this is exactly what you are saying, like as an example, two examples that do exactly this, like decentralizing, ideally digitizing the process so that you have central or like better access so you can actually also change some parts of the program, but it enables people to have a better and more nutritious food intake overall while not changing their behavior. Yeah, it's totally inspiring stuff. And like you said, both of those companies, BioAnalyt and Sanku, are doing fantastic work. So there you go. If you're listening to this and you're an entrepreneur, researcher, innovator of any kind, and whether you're thinking of applying to the XPRIZE Feed the Next Billion or not, you don't have to import massive machines necessarily from, from places like Europe to set up a $2, 3000000 million facility in a place like India. If you're able to kind of put your head down, do the research and get us to a place where we're able to produce fermentation-derived protein in the most remote parts of the world, which might be the most vulnerable 10 years from today in terms of climate change, etc. That could be truly, truly transformative. So thank you, Bernard, for, for those case studies that come in from different industries all the time and provide inspiration. So I just have a couple of further questions for you, Bernard, that are more general in nature. Of course, we know that um, the World Food Program was the winner of the 2020 Nobel Peace Prize. Um, you're the world's largest humanitarian agency. You've assisted 100 million people in 88 countries. And you're in a particularly exciting part of the World Food Program as well. 
in emerging markets like India, we see the opportunity to provide these cost-effective plant-based, fermentation-derived, cultivated proteins to even address nutrition deficits. It'll take us a long time to get there, but that's where we are aiming, sure enough. What are some key World Food Program initiatives that could be emulated towards successful outcomes in achieving this goal? What can we learn from the World Food Program in order to address all of this? So you mean like uh, hunger generally or fortification of what in particular? I think addressing the question of getting protein, particularly the kinds of protein that people want to eat, which is meat, eggs, and dairy, to them without necessarily breaking the planet. How do we learn from the World Food Program to address this in the poorest parts of the world or the poorest parts of the poorest countries in the world? I think this is also still a learning journey. And as the, like for a, an organization like the World Food Program, I mean, as much as we like reach people at scale. And it it's even was 114 million people by the end of last year. Um, then uh, the challenge always is, one is we do have a mandate and this is where we need to care for as a priority for the world's most vulnerable people. So this is when you're talking about like climate shocks, about wars, about COVID-19 aspects. And like, unfortunately, that's is actually getting worse right now. And we, we probably need more to help people in these, like the most basic emergency assistance that we have to provide to vulnerable populations. And then we will have a second element of all our programs, which is about changing lives, which is about, for instance, like working with school meals programs or school-based programs, mother and child nutrition programs and smaller farmer related activities, connecting them to markets. These are all activities that sustainably contribute towards ending hunger. And like the fact is oftentimes that people who are having a challenge in providing for themselves and their families, they just like either they are chronically hungry. So that just means they don't have enough money to buy food or that problem has been exacerbated even by some of these external shocks. So I do think like as much as this is probably not a, a solution per se, but like we do need to have political support. We need to have broader, like, you know, more people stepping up, better ideas for addressing some of these, these shocks, these short-term acute hunger problems. And then for sustainably ending hunger, I do think that like specifically looking at scaling things that have large scale impact. And then we're talking about for instance, like mother and child nutrition programs or school-based programs, like school meals, it's inherently clear that children go to school, they get nutritious meals, they also get education, therefore they are better equipped for the future. Similarly, for smallholder farmers, connecting them to markets so that it's a sustainable business model that lifts them out of hunger rather than just charity. I think these are really exciting models that we're seeing that can be replicated and should be replicated further and ideally even enabled by new business models and technologies. Yeah, that's a great answer. And it is quite sobering, right? Like Because people need to understand that there is no one-size-fits-all silver bullet type solution. It's about finding those that have large-scale impact and scaling them. And that's a matter of political will. It's a matter of investment. It's a matter of talent. Thinking through things like fortification, which still have such a long way to run in our food systems. What I'm taking from this with a sector that is still in its infancy, like the alternative protein space, is um, thinking through a lot of business models that have worked, looking at the operating model that makes sense for the market in which you are targeting, and of course, looking at what people actually want to eat 
and making sure that you're taking note of the constraints so that you can apply innovation and ingenuity to those problems in the poorest parts of the world, but still being pragmatic and knowing that it's going to take a long time for us to get there until we can get to supplying delicious, nutritious protein to the poorest parts of the world. But I think most importantly, even though there's no silver bullet, I think one message from you is something of a one-size-fits-all piece of advice, which is uh, we don't necessarily need another dating app, but we definitely need more people thinking about zero hunger. Absolutely. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I'll ask you one final question, Bernard, which we ask to everyone who comes on Feeding 10 Billion. How will we feed ourselves in the year 2050? How will humans be feeding themselves? I am hopeful and like that we will be able that on this planet that everybody, every person has the ability and the right to eat nutritious food and provide, uh, and actually like the daily intake is not only something that's just fulfilling their basic needs, but also something that they take pleasure or have, you know, a social component that, you know, we still enjoy actually doing that. I find like in democratizing or making like food more affordable or like people are able to afford this, I think is one of these vision points where like everybody on this planet has something to eat. Nobody has to go to bed hungry, specifically not children. And it should be doable. We know that there are there is innovations where we see vulnerable people, smallholder farmers doubling or tripling their income, be it like post-harvest loss reduction, like airtight silos, be it like something like that. And like this vision of we know it's possible. We know we can change something. We just need more bright ideas, more entrepreneurs stepping forward. And you know, maybe also more companies to actually like get inspired to say, okay, we want to influence the way we're doing this, not just by small pilots or for charitable purposes. Maybe one of our new business areas is to provide affordable, nutritious food to some of the most vulnerable. Bernard, thank you so much for being on Feeding 10 Billion. You have such a wealth of knowledge. Honestly, I would talk to you every week if I could. Uh, It's great. (laughs) It's really great to apply the lessons that you've learned and taught over a long time, both institutionally at the World Food Program and the newish Innovation Accelerator, but also you personally. Thank you so much for spending time with us today. Thanks so much, Varun. It's a great pleasure to be here. And it's, I'm really hopeful more people are excited about feeding the next billion and also stepping up and submitting ideas to the new XPRIZE. On the previous episode of Feeding 10 Billion, we revealed that the 28 semi-finalists for the XPRIZE Feed the Next Billion have been announced. The teams represent all the major regions around the world, and it's particularly heartening to see three Indian teams and four from the rest of Asia advance this far. As we've discussed, Asia is quite literally where much of the next billion people are located. And it's increasingly an epicenter of smart protein innovation. Two wonderful examples of that innovation are India's Brew51 and Seaspire, both working on producing smart protein alternatives to fish fillets in new and exciting ways. Brew51 founder Ravali Amba and Seaspire founder Varun Gadodia went through GFI India's Smart Protein Innovation Challenge last year. Seaspire was formed during the challenge and Brew51 honed their strategy and found early team members during the intense five-month education and incubation program. Varun was also a GFI India fellow a few years ago. So even though he's technically based in New Zealand, we're definitely claiming him and Seaspire as one of our own. 
These teams are each utilizing world-changing science to produce foods which could help safeguard the vitality of our ocean ecosystems. And we're thrilled that they're flying the Indian flag on the global stage of XPRIZE Feed the Next Billion. This is Varun Deshpande signing off on this episode of Feeding 10 Billion. For more information, you can visit us at gfi.org.in and you can also go to xprize.org for more information on Feed the Next Billion. You can also follow us on social media at the Good Food Institute India, on LinkedIn, Instagram, Twitter, or wherever you get your social media fix. And of course, if you like this podcast, don't forget to check out other interesting podcasts on the IVM network. You can listen to us on the IVM Podcasts app or on ivmpodcasts.com. You can also follow us on our social media. We are at IVM Podcasts on Twitter and Instagram. And if you want to reach me, you can find me at varundi 7 on Twitter and at Varun5 on Instagram. Take care and we'll see you soon.